Mark chapter 2 is this chapter where it was titled, So the, the Opposition Begins. Mark doesn't take long to get to that point. We're only in chapter 2, and already we see all the opposition to him. And it didn't take him long in chapter 1 to tell us all the things that the gospel brings. You'll remember, already in chapter 1, there's demons that are cast out. There's healings. There's a calling of his disciples. There's a widespread uh, message going out. Crowds, probably hundreds, are just piling into Peter's mother-in-law's home, and he's healing. And so there's his ministry, just uh, like a rocket, takes off in Mark. Chapter 2, the opposition begins very quickly as well. And you'll see today, we probably won't make it there, but in chapter 3, verse 6, so we're only just a, two chapters into it, and this opposition which begins in chapter 2 sort of ends this section in chapter 3, verse 6. It says, The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. So very early on, Mark gets us there. The opposition to Jesus is pretty intense, and they want to destroy him really early in his ministry. He's in Capernaum at this point. And last week we read about, we finished with the, him calling Matthew, the tax collector, who was despised by the Jews because he's a tax collector, basically working for the Romans, cooperating with them. He was resented, resented by them. The tax collectors were mostly corrupt, kept a lot of the money to themselves, didn't give um, the Roman governor all that they told the people they were collecting for. So, yet, immediately when he's called, he leaves everything and follows after Jesus. It's a great example for us of his power to save us and call us. And he came for those who are sick, not for those who are healthy. And that's where we ended last week in chapter 2, verse 17. Jesus explained, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. The sick ones like Matthew, you know, who are the sinners, the people who are despised of the world are those who need the Savior. He didn't come to call the righteous, and he means they're the people who think they're these righteous people. He didn't come for them. He came for sinners, which is everybody. So, and Matthew's a great example of the sinners, just like us. And the people who heard his message would have understood this proverb that had been well known at that point in time. So we finished. Matthew, he's called, and he's not just a sinner who is called. He's there in his home having a feast with all his other sinners, and tax collectors, and Jesus, or Mark uses that phrase three times in those verses, the sinners and tax collectors, sinners and tax collectors. And they're in there having a feast, and the Pharisees look at that, and they call him on it. Why is he having a feast with the, with the uh, tax collectors and sinners? So we are going to transition from this feast that he's having into a question about <coughs> uh, fasting. And I want to read for us, we'll read verse 18 through 22. 22, yes. And then we'll pick up after that later. So let's just read that section here when he's asked about fasting. Uh, verse 18, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunken cloth on an old garment, otherwise the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and the worst tear results. No one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and the wine that is lost and the skins as well, but one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. So, it's noted that Jesus' disciples aren't fasting. And the Pharisees see that. And a point, one point you can make here is that uh, the Pharisees knew they weren't fasting, so it just highlights the Pharisees were watching these guys day after day after day after day, right? Keeping their eye on them, just waiting for some way to accuse them. And they notice, oh, they're not fasting. Even John's disciples were fasting, and of course, the Pharisees fasted a lot, right? And they're proud of that fact, and they let everyone know that they were fasting. So, 
self-righteous Pharisees ask this question, and I think before we get into Jesus' answer, I want to review for us what was required in the Old Testament for fasting. Anybody know what the requirement of the Old Testament law was for fasting? Well, the only day that was required for fast was the Day of Atonement, once a year. And that's spelled out in Leviticus. We won't go there, but Leviticus 16, verse 19, was the Day of Atonement. And on that day is when all the uh, Israelites were to fast, prescribed once a year. And that was in the Old Testament teaching and Old Testament ritual. But you too read about fasting a lot in the Old Testament, uh, multiple times, and I've got a few examples for us here, but basically you'll see fasting always associated in the Old Testament, not always, almost always associated with grief or with penitence or with humility before God. You, this is where it's often uh, noted. You read the Psalms, David would fast. You know, when he was repentant of his sin, he fasted all day long. When his son was dying, his newborn son was about to die, and he went uh, away for a time of fasting. First Samuel chapter 7, verse 6, it says, They gathered to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the sons of Israel at Mizpah. So there's an example in First Samuel where the people were penitent and they used that as a time of fasting. So it implies in the Old Testament when there was um, some serious thoughts about our sin, about humbling ourselves before God, would prompt them to fast. In 1 Samuel chapter 31, um, when, yes, this is at the end of 1 Samuel when Saul is killed. Saul and his sons were killed by the Philistines. It says, Now when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men rose and walked all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. They took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree of Jabesh and fasted seven days. So this is an example of fasting during a time of grief. And I already mentioned in Second Samuel, David fasted before his child died. And it says later in Second Samuel 12, verses 22 and 23, he said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows that the Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. So he, David was thinking, this is a special petition before God. I'm going to fast and I'm going to pray and hope the Lord will hear me. And then verse 23, but now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Ezekiel, or Ezra, chapter 8. This is um, when they're returning from the Babylonian captivity. It says, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for us, our little ones, and all our possessions. So the Old Testament does have examples of fasting, but really the only time it was commanded in the law was in Leviticus, the one day a year, the uh, Day of Atonement. But by the time of Jesus, the ritual had expanded a lot, and you can actually read about that in some other of the Old Testament um, <coughs> depictions where they would have different days of fasting that they had created outside of the law that was a ritual uh, in Israel. And for sure the Pharisees fasted twice a week. And you can read about that in Matthew 6. You know, Jesus talks to them, he says, when you, fa when you fast, don't put on a gloomy face like the Pharisees do, but when you fast, do it in secret. So the point there being that they did fast a lot, twice a week, you can read that in Luke and another section of Matthew. Um, Matthew 18, where it says that they fasted twice a week so that they could appear righteous. They were setting this legalistic um, ordinance that they could perform that they thought would make them righteous and probably as important as that would make them righteous compared to everyone else, the little people who weren't able to be as disciplined as they were. So that's what Jesus is uh, up against here when he's with his disciples, and they're not fasting. I will say, um, let me read for you, actually, this Matthew 18, verse 9. This is a, a parable that Jesus tells. 
Matthew 18, 9 through 14. Uh, he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So this is the people he's talking to. He's telling this to people who are trusting in themselves that they're righteous <coughs> and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. How appropriate, right? We, we just came off the tax collector and the Pharisee's here. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's almost like you could see Matthew here saying this, I am a sinner, and then a Pharisee's with their self-righteous attitude. Okay, the other, last thing I want to say before we get back into the text is uh, Jesus did not condemn fasting as a as an ordinance or as, as a practice. He did not condemn it. In fact, you can see right here in Mark 20, this very next couple verses, when he says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So he acknowledges that there's a time coming, even for the new believers, of grief and fasting that is appropriate. And in Matthew chapter 6, when he says, whenever you fast, don't put on the gloomy face. So again, implying there will be time when we will fast. I review all this just to say, I think it's controversial a little bit in our time as to whether we should fast and if we do, how often and in what situations are we to fast. And maybe we can, we'll ask you guys in a few minutes what you think of it. But the point <coughs> I'm trying to make is it was common in the Old Testament times. It was common for the Pharisees. Jesus condemned it to those who did it often and especially to show other people how holy they were, how righteous they were. And we'll see here, his disciples were not fasting. This was a time of feast. Jesus was here. And what Jesus is doing here with this uh, scene, or what Mark is doing, I should say, with this scene, and then we'll see when the Sabbath is questioned a little bit later, is he's showing that, uh, again, a new day is here. The, the, the old law and the punitive effect and the jot and the tittle of law and keeping the law, that's not what Jesus is about. It's a new time. The God is here with us. It is the time to celebrate that and to enjoy it and to have this feast. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. God is here. Enjoy it. Partake in it. And basically have a feast while I'm here. Don't worry. The time of fasting will come, he says. But for now, when Jesus is here, uh, we're to enjoy that. And this is a radical change from what the people have been taught all this time by the Pharisees. This sort of really harsh sort of ascetic life and um, Jesus' time is different. He's showing them this is a, a, new, a new covenant has come and the Pharisees don't understand that and they won't understand it throughout the whole book. A few other examples of fasting, by the way, I forgot to mention these, is uh, Jesus fasted for 40 days before he was tempted by the devil. We read about that in Matthew. Uh, 40-day fast, and then after his fast was when the devil tried to tempt him, but it didn't work. But Jesus did fast, and he tells us if we fast, we fast in secret. In the New Testament, you see, if you fast, uh, it's often linked with prayer. So it's a time of fasting and prayer. It's a serious, humble, quiet time of fasting. And in Acts, we can read about it a little bit. It's not really something you read about a lot in Acts. A couple, couple scenes, uh, Acts chapter 13, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, and then it talks about how Barnabas and Paul were commissioned to uh, you know, go forth on their first journey. So a, a serious moment, I guess, of commissioning of two people, and there was ministry or of fasting and prayer. And then also in Acts, in the first journey, they appointed every the elders in the church with fasting and prayer. But other than just a few of those uh, scenes and acts, and then this teaching, these few verses I've mentioned in Matthew, you, we don't see a command for Christians to fast. We do see a command to pray, to read the word, but there's not a command for us to fast. 
So um, any comments on fasting? I want to that pretty quick, but um, I, I think uh, a lot of Christians do fast quietly and uh, with the um, attitude like I've described where we sense there's a time where I want to get serious for a bit and I want to fast because if you've ever done it, you'll notice it really does focus your mind. If, you, if you're doing it for the Lord and if you're doing it because I want to really focus my attention on a certain sin that I have or a certain person I want to pray for, if you've ever fasted, it does focus your mind because you're hungry and you want to eat and you have to deny that and it, it helps one think of why you're doing it. And So I guess my commentary on it is uh, I, I think periodically we should do it as, as a blessing to us and as a, a service to the Lord. But for sure, I don't think we should do it all that often. I don't think we should sort of, because then you can get into this uh, punishing myself sort of mode or like if I don't fast this week, then I'm guilty. I'm not a good Christian or I'm not working hard enough. So I would be cautious about that. But I think I'm trying to express it the way I see it. I think it's it's healthy once in a while to do it, to fast for the Lord, and um, but be careful that you don't do it as a way. Well, the fast in in Leviticus was they couldn't eat anything or drink anything all day. It was a complete fast of food. But yes, I've I've heard all kinds of different types of fasts. A Juicy fasting and all that sort of stuff. Some people do it for dietary reasons, which I think is really silly. Don't do that. That I mean, I would not mix. I, I hear that a lot, by the way. You might too. The special juice diet that's going to give them some spiritual and physical benefit, and I, I just I I don't like that at all. But I think on a spiritual side, a a fast, and I've heard some of us will fast from something we like. You know, like um, you know, dessert or TV or something. But I think all that's can be healthy if, if you know, you know, this is a really distraction from what I could otherwise be doing that's more productive, like prayer or reading the Word, and I'm going to just deny myself for a little while, for a season, these worldly things. I think it can be very healthy. It's honors the Lord. You don't talk about it. Yeah. You do <coughs> under the Lord, and as you do it, you empty yourself of a lot of your own self-thinking, yep. and you just kind of enter into the presence yep. of the wonderness of just being with God. Yeah, it's a great and blessing. You and you don't, you don't run around telling people about it because mm-hmm. that robs you of why you did it to begin with. Right. Yeah, it, it's, it can be a blessing to deny yourself of something you want and focus on the things that are eternal and the things that are not seen and things that are ultimately a lot more important. Growing up, it was, I guess, the circle that I was growing in, it was almost looked, up, looked as a, a hierarchy of, like, you have prayer of getting what you want, kind of at this level, and then, yeah. and then if you want to, if you want to really get what you want, then maybe you'll fast some and pray. It's kind of like maybe now we'll get what we want, and uh, it, it always struck me as kind of strange and, and wrong. But to hear the Old Testament and kind of the way that it was used, and, and the humbling of yourself, and mm-hmm. and in times of grieving, and um, it really changes that perspective quite mm-hmm. a bit. Of it's not a matter of, you know, I'm going to get what I want now because I'm denying myself of this or, right. you know, I'm taking it to the next level here. I'm going to fast and I'll get prayer. Um, but it's, it's really recognizing your place before God and the, and the fact that you don't deserve anything mm-hmm. from Him. And, and yet, you know, you're still requesting this, but with the knowledge that it's not something you deserve and mm-hmm. you glorify Him through it regardless. Right. It's not like it's a secret formula that you're uh, escalating formula of getting what you want. Right. And uh, it's almost like David did that. You know, when he was fasting and praying before the death of his son, it's, I, I kind of read between the lines there. Not, we read what David did. We don't hear commentary on whether that was right or not. But it seems to me like this was a, a grief. You know, he, he knew something horrible was about to happen and he was pleading with God. And, but I don't think we should use the formula to get what we want. Yeah, but the curveball to that is, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, um, I don't know exactly if it was in Mark or Matthew, but where he sends out the disciples, yeah, and they can't, gonna... and they, they come back and they said they, they couldn't um, cast out right. one of the demons, Yes. and he said, this one can only come out 
through prayer and fasting. Yes. I think that's maybe where people kind of get that maybe like there's this like, okay, you enter into this like special place when you're fasting. Yeah. That's exactly what I was going to comment on yours. That, I think that's where that comes from. There is a scriptural basis for that thought, which is it's in Matthew, um, I think, and Luke both. I'm sorry I didn't write it down. But yeah, the, the, basically the disciples are sent out. They cannot cast out the demons. And Jesus says, well, this demon can only be cast out through fasting and prayer. Um, in light of the other texts here, I think we have to assume that, that, that this reinforces the idea of sometimes there, there is an intense prayer that we're driven to that fasting maybe naturally comes with it. That's the other thing, by the way. I don't... When you've had something horrible happen to you in your life, relationship or death or you don't eat, right? You just don't eat. And it actually seems to sharpen when it's happened to me. It really does sort of help us focus a little. I don't know what to make of that. But intense times with the Lord might be company with fasting. I remember like 20-something years ago there was the in our nation, the 40 days of fasting. Yeah. yeah. You know, the interesting thing about that was everybody knew who was doing it. You know, I yeah. mean, obviously, if you don't eat for 40 days, you're going to drop 40 or 50 pounds. You know? but, yeah. Um, but you know what I mean? I, and, yes. You know, so there was really, you know, where was the glory to the Lord in that if everybody knew about it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and wouldn't you say... Uh, Medically speaking, there's some people that probably can't even do a 24-hour fast because yeah. of their glucose levels yeah. and all that. You of know? course, yeah. So, so for me to say, well, I did it for a week, you know, you only did it for eight hours, you know, I'm more godly than you are. Yeah, I, that's getting right back where the Pharisees were. I but, think so. But if you're privately doing it, you do it for two hours, then mm-hmm. God's glorified, right? So, I think so. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so, but I think we, if we could round out the fasting, you know, Jesus fasted. Uh, he says there will be a time when the disciples will fast. So it, he doesn't condemn it. It will happen. It's okay to fast. It's often associated with prayer. And on the other side, for sure, don't do it so other people know about it. Don't use it as a... Um, as a mark of holiness for you, that I can fast and I'm more holy. And I don't think it's right, even despite this verse that Jesus says about fasting and prayer, I don't think it's an escalating formula to get what we want from the Lord. I think he loves us and he knows our prayers way before we ever even utter them or think them. And he grants to us what we need and what he wants to give us and doesn't need our physical suffering to get what we want. It was Second Timothy. He talked about he had a weak stomach and to drink some wine for his stomach. Is that what you're referring to? Maybe. Maybe it's not about Paul. Okay. Yeah, we studied Second Timothy. I don't remember Second Timothy for sure. So he mentioned the wine. I don't remember any fasting. Seems to be an attitude of the heart. Mm-hmm. think so. Serious, solemn, humble, mm-hmm. grief, prayer. I think all those would go together in private. Even Jesus' 40-day one, you know, when Satan was there, I read something, uh, I think the book was by Dr. Russell Moore. can't remember the name of the book. The Tempted and Tried, maybe? But um, he broke down that 40-day thing really uh, in depth. He, you know, Jesus didn't pull the God Trump card out and not eat for 40 days. It was a suffering human thing. And and for to mm-hmm. grasp the magnitude of that, he, he was talking about in the book that I haven't been to Israel, but I understand from what he wrote, seeing stuff, that there's rocks everywhere. 
You know, I mean, just everywhere. So, you know, when Satan said, you know, I'll turn these rocks hmm. into bread or these stones, um, you know, that after that amount of time, that you know, that would have been so tempting for Christ. And the fact that every day of his life until he moved away from his mom and dad's home, he would have, the culture would depict that she would have been baking bread every day. So every day you walk in and smell fresh bread, you know, and then to see all these rocks, mm-hmm. and I mean, he said you know, he would have been uh, salivating at, at yeah. the temptation that Satan was throwing at him. Mm-hmm. You know? So again, you know, he was drawing his strength from the Father to do all that. So that was a, a neat portion mm-hmm. of it. Yeah. Thanks. Okay, so uh, a few other things I just want to mention about this, these four verses. Uh, first is John's disciples were fasting, and no comment here on whether that was proper or not, but we know John was this ascetic guy, and that was his personality. He was out there in the desert with his belt and his you know, locusts, and he was just an ascetic prophet crazy guy, sort of, right? And so, so that was his personality, and, and uh, we don't read in the New Testament that he told his disciples to fast, but in any event, for some reason, his disciples were fasting, and it may have been they were fasting because they were grieving over his loss. He may have been, you know, his death was before this, and they may have still been fasting for that reason, or they may have just had this uh, habit of fasting. And they ask, why do your disciples not fast? They're, they expect at that culture, if you were a new movement, you know, there's lots of new religious movements at that point in time, and <coughs> most of them were marked by these um, rituals of self-denial, and fasting was a big part of it. So Jesus, again, broke the mold on that. His disciples were very different from other movements that were around at that time. Most of those people would have been showing some sort of um, fasting or self-denial. And Jesus is very plainly tells them essentially with this story about the bridegroom and we all know the imagery there right you have a groom and it's a wedding feast and back then the wedding feast wasn't just you know a wedding and then a two-hour reception and then go home it was like a whole week long this huge grand feast the whole town was there and everyone was eating and drinking enjoying themselves for a week so jesus is telling them this is what's happening here i'm the bridegroom the attendants are here with me and this is the time to celebrate I'm healing, I'm curing diseases, I'm casting out demons. This is the time to celebrate. And then this is the first warning, by the way, when he says that the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away. That word taken away uh, means like a violent ripping away. So he's basically, this is the first time we see it here where Jesus tells him, you know, I'm going to be killed violently. That day will come. This is the first time we see it in Mark. And in that day, they will fast and grieve doesn't say grieve, but that's essentially what he's implying here is that they will fast and grieve in that day. And then these verses 21 through 22, you have the imagery, two sort of mini parables here about the sewing a patch. And so I think we understand what that means, right? You have an old cloth that's been washed a lot of times. If you sew a new piece of cloth on it and then wash them, the new one will shrink and pull apart and make the hole bigger than the one that was there initially. Same with wine skins. They would store wine in these goat skins and they had to be fresh because when you, they would pour the wine in it partially, I don't understand winemaking, but I know it had to ferment and it would ferment in these goat skins and the leather in the goat skins, when they're new, would be able to expand and allow that fermentation to take place and it wouldn't burst the skins, but over time those skins became brittle and hard and if they couldn't expand anymore and when they expanded, all the wine would fall out. So it's pretty clear what Jesus is saying. I'm the new wine coming in, right? My teaching is the new way. I'm the, um, I'm the new patch. And you just can't mesh me with this old stuff that you guys are talking about, referring to the fasting ritual. It's a new day. And this is what Mark, even in just these two chapters, see over and over again. It's new. Something different is here. Jesus has arrived, and Jesus is teaching that here. So you have to put new wine into fresh wineskins. That's why he's here teaching them. The fresh wineskins is what he's teaching them over these weeks, months, and years while he's here. 
Any other questions about that? And so the teaching here is, you know, Christ's followers are to break free from a lot of these old shackles that they have learned from the Pharisees and their teachings. Any other comments on those two sections? So you'll, if you follow the, um, the pattern here or the, the flow here of Mark, Matthew was called, they have a grand feast. Right after the feast is a teaching on fasting, so you have this contrast. After the fasting, you will, will move into these questions about the Sabbath. And I think fasting for the Pharisees and then keeping the Sabbath were two um, marks of religiosity for them. It was very important to fast and then keep this Sabbath. And of course, their keeping of the Sabbath was way beyond what the law taught. And we're going to get into that here in a minute. But I'd like to, if I could, we'll just read that section. That, there's two sections, actually, that deal with the Sabbath. The first one from 23, verse 23 toward the end of the <coughs> chapter. Um, we'll read about how his disciples violated the Sabbath by picking these little grain from the grain stalks and, and eating them. And the Pharisees said, well, they violated the Sabbath by doing that. We'll talk about that. And then the next uh, violation of the Sabbath, according to them, is when Jesus heals this fellow with a, with a withered hand. So if I could, I'll just read all those, verse 23 of chapter 2 through verse 6 of chapter 3. And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need, and he and his companions became hungry? how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. That was true, by the way. David did that. He violated the law. He ate the bread. It was not lawful for him to do that. Only the priests and the sons of Aaron could eat that consecrated bread. Uh, and he also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill it? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, Grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began to cons conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. So, we're going to talk about the Sabbath. I don't know what the opinions are about Sabbath in this room. Um, anybody want... So, do we keep the Sabbath in our church as a, as a holy special day? Any? Sort of a leading question. No, is the answer, right? Um, a lot of churches do still. So there's, basically there's, there is confusion in the new, the new time about what, what do we do about the fourth commandment, right? Keep the Sabbath holy, a day of rest. How do we handle that? We do meet on sort of Sunday, which is like the new Sabbath for the new church in a way, but it's not really. So I want, I want to just talk about that and maybe hear your opinions about how we're to handle Sundays, this day of rest, because... Um, God did institute it in the Old Testament. Do you guys know when the first time the word Sabbath is used in the Bible? Nope, quite. Nope. Not, it's not until Exodus. So anyway, I learned this as I was preparing for this. It's actually, I thought it was the, the um, Ten Commandments. I thought that was the first time I would read about it in Exodus chapter 20, but it's not. It's actually Exodus chapter 16. And uh, of course you'll know this when I tell you, but it's when... Um, Moses is leading them out of Egypt. The Egyptian army is chasing them. They're flooded by the sea, and they, they're sort of safe for a while, and they start getting hungry, and he gives them the manna, and then he gives them the meat. And it was at that time when he said, remember, he said, only eat, only take enough for, the for today. You'll get enough for tomorrow. Don't take more. If you take more, it's going to rot, and it did, and it putrefied, and it rotted, and there, some of the people were punished for taking too much. But on the sixth day, they could take two um, 
was it Omer? Is that the word? Anyway, they could take like two helpings for everybody. And they could save that so that on the Sabbath, they could have a day of rest. They wouldn't have to go collect their food. And so that's the first time you see the word Sabbath used. And that's the first time it's mentioned in, in the Old Testament. So that was sort of when he started explaining to them this seventh day where they could rest. Of course, God rested on the seventh day. So it mirrors that too. But it's Exodus chapter 16, verse 23, if any of you are interested, when Sabbath is first mentioned. And then you next read about it when he lists the Ten Commandments, the Fourth Commandment. Keep the Sabbath holy and worship on that day. It's not what it says. It says, keep the Sabbath holy and do no work. That's the main issue here with the Sabbath is don't work. It's a blessing to the people. Don't work. It's a blessing. Although, um, if you didn't keep the Sabbath, actually there was a death penalty. Because in Exodus 31 it says, you know, if you violate the Sabbath, you can be put to death. So even though on the one hand it was a blessing to them, God took it seriously in the uh, Old Testament time. The question came up for the Pharisees and over the years of the <coughs> Jewish people, what does it mean to do no work exactly? I mean, what does that look like? Um, how far can I walk? How much can I lift? What can I do? So if you research the Sabbath, well, I researched it as best I could, and there are some things for sure that the uh, Old Testament law says you could not do on a Sabbath. <coughs> you couldn't do any farming. You couldn't get out and farm your field. That's in Exodus 34, 21. You couldn't kindle a fire. So this, this is directly things that I think the Bible clearly said to them you couldn't do. You couldn't farm. You couldn't start a fire. You could not go in the marketplace and trade your wine and your, your, your goods your farm goods. So you, you weren't to go into market and trade on that day. And Jeremiah seventeen twenty one says you could not carry a heavy load. So there's like something we could list as some things that the Bible says you, you shouldn't do on the Sabbath. Well, the uh, Pharisees had a lot bigger list than that. And it got pretty extreme as the things you could and couldn't do. And so that's what Jesus is up against here when the... Pharisees see his, him and his band walking through the fields and they're eating these, uh, this grain. Um, so just sort of like fasting had been expanded by the Pharisees, so too had the, the laws around the Sabbath been expanded a lot by the Pharisees. If you want to know how do we really handle the Sabbath, and look at the teachings in the gospel of Jesus on the Sabbath, there's really only two separate places where Jesus teaches about the Sabbath. And this is one of them, and it's actually repeated in Matthew and Luke, the same, same parallel account. And then there's another section in Luke, essentially says the same thing, but uh, so we, we need to look at it and to help us figure out what we are to, you know, how, how do we sort of keep the fourth commandment, or do we keep the fourth commandment, as Christians in this day and time. So let's look at the text here and what it says about the Sabbath. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm jumping around. I'm in Mark chapter 2, verse 23. The parallel verses, if you want to know, is Matthew 12, 1 through 8, and Luke 6, 1 through 5. Those are really just parallel verses for this, and there are some nuances in those verses which I'll mention here today. But essentially... The scene here is they're walking through the field on the Sabbath. And Matthew says that they were hungry. That's why they did this. So they're hungry. And they crack this wheat or whatever it is, and they start eating the heads of grain. And you'll notice again, though, that the Pharisees are there. So again, they're like ubiquitous. They're always around watching everything. So apparently they're walking through the field, and the Pharisees are walking with them watching what they're doing. It's just a strange scene, but they're determined to, to uh, accuse him. And in John's Gospel, it's very clear if you read through it. It's almost like Jesus, or John intentionally, or Jesus intentionally, John records Jesus, intentionally does a lot of healings on the Sabbath, Jesus does in John's Gospel. I mean, it's over and over and over again. He's trying to make a point that this is an ordinance you guys are keeping, and his healings on the Sabbath are merciful and kind and good. The Sabbath was made for man, was supposed to be merciful and kind. That trumps the ritual. 
But in John, if you read it, you'll see so many of his miracles run the Sabbath. Um, and Jesus even in John points out, that's where he says, um, he, he gets them caught up. Basically, he says, uh, you know, Moses circumcised on the Sabbath. Basically, you know, sometimes the eighth day for circumcision is going to happen on a Sabbath. And you didn't condemn him for that. So essentially, Jesus makes a lot of good arguments in John that they had misinterpreted the purpose of the Sabbath. And I'll read this section in John. It says, it's chapter 5, verse 16 to 18. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on a Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So, Jesus is here to explain to us that the understanding of the Sabbath is now different. It is a lot different, and they had misinterpreted it all these years. And he does that by um, allowing them to eat and eat this food. When they say to him, uh, what are they doing is not lawful on the Sabbath. In a way, what they're saying is, well, if you, let me back up. If you read Luke, Luke says when they, let's see. I'm sorry, let me get my account, my, my parallel. It's interesting how Luke describes them eating this, this wheat. Give me a second. Yeah. On the Sabbath, this is Luke chapter 6, verse 1. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some ears of grain, rubbing them in their hands. So the commentator I read makes a point. What the Pharisees are saying here is when he plucks the grain, rubs it in his hands, and no doubt it's scattered to the wind, right? The, the Mishnah that they had, which is a list of things you couldn't do on the Sabbath, said that you cannot, um, give me a second. Yes, it said that you cannot reap, you cannot thresh, and you cannot winnow. So you can't reap, which is what they're, they're probably thinking they're reaping. And when they rubbed it in their hand, that's their, that's their version of threshing. And then winnowing is when the wind blows away the chaff and the wheat falls. You can't winnow. So probably they're saying, look it, they are working on the Sabbath by, by doing this little thing. Uh, so in their minds, the Sabbath was violated. And Jesus teaches them actually something really interesting here. And he refers to Old Testament scripture and says, haven't you read when David was running away from Saul? You remember he was being chased by Saul. Saul wanted to kill him and he sought refuge. He was hungry. He and his men were hungry and they went to the uh, temple to the priest and God said, you know, give them the showbread. This is the showbread which uh, they made it once a week and the priest ate it once a week and then replenished the supply every week. And it was not to be eaten by anyone except the priests. And, but David did it, and David was never criticized in the Bible for doing that, even though it did violate the law. And Jesus brings this point up to say, because David was who he was, he sort of got an exception. And actually, he was hungry. He needed food. It was merciful for him to eat the bread. And so his eating of the bread satisfied the Sabbath because the Sabbath was made for man. It was made as a blessing to us to essentially not work. That's the main idea behind the Sabbath. So to be merciful to people is much more important than keeping this ordinance of the law that you're doing here, especially when you consider they're accusing him of just this little itty-bitty task. Um, so David had an exception, and Jesus is saying, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, and I'm basically here to tell you that the Sabbath was made for man. And no longer do you have to essentially keep these laws. He was basically resisting this whole structure they had constructed to uh, justify themselves. Again, it's a new day. It's a new time. 
So he quotes the scripture, he explains the situation with David. David had authority to do that because he was David and I and Jesus have authority to tell you about the Sabbath the way it really is because I am the Lord. So the Sabbath was made to promote, to promote mankind's welfare. That's why it was there. It was there to bless the people so they wouldn't have any rest. It wasn't there as a way, for, something for us to keep, to become holy. Yeah, that is a great point, isn't it? They didn't seem to be intimidated by the Pharisees. Of course, at this point, they'd seen so many miracles, so many healings, and so many demons being cast out that helped. Plus, you know, they were called by the Lord, and they were going to follow him. And Mark is the uh, only text that says, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath sort of rounding out the point he makes there. So the Sabbath was made to promote our welfare. It was a gift from God, a time of rest, a time of refreshing for us. And it also is, you know, one day a week, a time to you know, elevate ourselves above the day-to-day and focus on the Lord. That was sort of its, its intention, and it had been abused by the Pharisees. So the question for us is how do we as a church, look, I want to finish this, how do we interpret the Sabbath? I think these, these texts here about Jesus saying that the Sabbath is for man, not the man for Sabbath, um, and him explaining here that being kind to other people, satisfying what we need with food and rest is more important than following the law, essentially abolishes the idea of the Sabbath being this special ordinance that we have to keep like the Old Testament people kept. Uh, Shane works on Sundays, right? <coughs> a lot of us work on Sundays, and it's not a violation of God's plan for us. It, it isn't. We also meet on Sundays. That was a pattern set up in the New Testament church. You can read through Acts. I mean, every week, Paul's going into synagogue to teach, and that was sort of a pattern that you see the New Testament church gathering together once a week, and we have it now on Sundays instead of Saturdays because that was a, traditionally the day the Lord rose from the dead on a Sunday. And then two, you have the example of Paul telling them to take up a collection. It's in 1 Corinthians 9. And first, anyway, he says, when you meet together, take up a collection for the church. So that was another tradition that started in the church. So we worship together on Sundays. We meet together like we're called to meet regularly, and we just do it on Sundays. We take up an offering on Sunday. I know a lot of us tend to rest on Sundays. I think that's really healthy, practically, to have a day of rest during the week as best you can. And a lot of us work on Sunday. It's not a sin to do that. So I just mention this because the church, well, there are churches that really take a serious stance on the issue of the Sabbath, and they just, it, it's a religion, part of the religion to rest on Sunday, and they just lay around and watch football or whatever. I'm going to say it tongue-in-cheek, but, but really, I don't want to be, but yeah, so they, they just rest. So I don't think it's, it's not necessary. I wouldn't hope any of us put that burden on ourselves. Um, yeah, on the other hand, I, I think it's good to have a day, practically speaking, of rest where you can put other things aside. I think it's really good discipline and healthy for us to do that, but I don't think the Bible at all teaches it. We have to keep the Sabbath as a day of rest. Any disagreements on that? I'm glad I have an elder here to help me because I hope I'm not off on a limb here, but go ahead. Not, not a disagreement. I think Hebrews 4 speaks to that as well in that it talks about the believer's rest and kind of specifically addresses the Sabbath in the first part and the fact that for a, a believer entering into Jesus as his rest is... Yeah. Uh, it's really the fulfillment of, mm -hmm. of keeping the Sabbath. Yes. And, um, Excellent. So I think that it, point. To, to your point, that, it, yeah. you know, that for, for a believer trying to rest on, on Saturday, you know, is still trying to, to keep the law when the law has been fulfilled through Jesus and they're, they're looking Thank at the you. wrong spot for their, yep. uh, for their 
Great point. Thank you. Yes, we've already entered into this time of rest. We're as believers. Go ahead. I was just going to, another supporting one to that was in Colossians, where you know, the Sabbath is really put into the same kind of category as the festivals, the new, the new moons, like all of those that we've seen yes. um, we don't need to keep because the fulfillment is, is Christ, and those things were all just shadows of, of that, of what he says. So these are the shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Yes. I, twice today. You read my mind, Neil. I'm going to read that actually for us. Colossians chapter 2. You guys can flip there because it, to me this sort of summarizes even uh, the teaching on the fasting. The fasting and the keeping the Sabbath. And the whole concept Jesus is getting at is um, right here in Colossians chapter 2. verse. I'll start at verse um, 15. But before I read it, whenever you get to Colossians 3, you ever read Colossians 3? Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, and he goes on and lists all these blessings we have in Christ, well, the therefore comes after this section here uh, of Colossians 2, verse 15. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees, such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Then he says, therefore, you know, if you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above. And then he tells them how, what Jesus is saying, you know, love people, serve the Lord, you know, turn from your sinful ways kind of thing. So I think it makes a point. That's a great verse that I think summarizes this whole teaching he has in Mark. Pharisees don't like it at all because they like their system. We'll have to end there. Any other questions or thoughts?